August is fejal at agron the nervous state clustal and payout in a vine to pod cruelty. August mullum deviation in the Isari a Fergal, a tall lonihe male first day. August tall on screef again when Marxcus, Poblacticus, August Gloro de Ella and Allah Fenians and Ribbon Lane. August Aaron Blog at all again, Blusk Punk WordPress Punk Com. Isari a Karen O'Loon freshen, a tall lonihe la clea. August tall lower when a hair in the Antia, Ratkul and United Irish Rebellions are foil of Four Courts Press. Erdus dir mei erhu akkora erin go hex of anan leshon gunra angla erinok akkornu. Yeah, so the political context, first of all, of the three negotiations are two successive uh, democratic mandates for National Republic. In essence, uh, the general election result of 1918 has been strangely questioned in some places, which uh, it shouldn't be because there was no contest in 25 Republic or predominantly Republican constituencies, but it was a clear mandate for National Republic on the end of Ireland and be no real equivocation about the fact that the Sinn Féin manifesto was Republican and anti and imperialist, actually. Uh, in content, it wasn't really long, but that's what people were voting for. They were, uh, you know, uh, the dollar earned set up in uh, January 1919 based on obviously. Non recognition of British authority. And then in both January and June 1920, parties that are standing for the Republic, either Sinn Fein or the Irish Labour Party, which is in favour of the Republic, or in some areas, such as a combination of Sinn Fein and the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, receive uh, 80% of the vote in the rural elections in June. And overall, between both urban and rural elections in 1920, you get over 70% of the vote. So, Consider the fact that 70% of the people who voted in Ireland in 1920 voted for an Irish Republic. And the British response to this was not to accede to the claims of this small nation, right? the fact that it had supposedly fought a war for the freedom of small nations and then had uh, carried out the incredible uh, <coughs> conjuring trick of uh, applying the principle of self-determination in Central and Eastern Europe, but then managing to uh, increase the size of their own empire during the uh, peace talks in Paris. The British government responded to the second and probably far more emphatic uh, declaration or democratic mandate for a republic by uh, a massive campaign of repression. A massive campaign of repression that begins after the urban elections with the introduction of the Black and Tan March and then is facilitated further after the rural elections in June by the introduction of the auxiliaries in July. So they, they kind of completely uh, reject the democratic uh, choice of the, the, the Irish people uh, in unison with this in the summer of 1920, obviously, and a lot of the research that I've recently carried out kind of demonstrates that uh, the unionist political establishment threatened probably more by inroads being made by uh, an anti-partitionist working class mobilization, which is quite breathtaking really in its scope across much of Eastern and Central Ulster, they instituted a pogrom 
Institute of Pogrom in uh, July 1920, after the return from the shipyards, the evidence is, is that the Pogrom was carried out by an organisation set up by Edward Carson, directed by Richard Dawson Bates, who would subsequently be the Minister of Home Affairs, and chaired, it was a strange sort of labour organisation, it was chaired by a mill owner, James Andrews, who would be subsequently the Minister of Labour in the Northern Government, and, would sub- and then be Prime Minister. The Austrian Labour Association essentially direct the expulsion of uh, approximately 10,000 Catholic and rotten Protestant or socialist Protestant trade unions from the shipyards major engineering works. And the British government retrospectively sanctioned this by converting the pogromists and the UVF into the Ulster Special Constabulary, which uh, is sealed in September, is introduced in October, and is then sent to two areas, Belfast and Tyrone, in November 1920. So the British government's response to the uh, quite unequivocal declaration of you know, 70% of the population supporting an Irish Republic is massive coercion, both in the North and the South. Obviously, in the South, we don't need to rehearse the campaign of the Black and Tans uh, and the massive escalation in violence after November 1920. The British are unable to defeat uh, the National Liberation Movement militarily. In fact, General McCready advises the cabinet after martial law has been proclaimed and the army have been introduced, uh, despite the fact that for almost a year the British have been saying that this was a, a, an outburst, a spontaneous outburst of crime and a police uh, emergency, General McCready advises the cabinet that it's either all in or all out. Either they have to completely coerce the Irish population or they'll have to, the army will have to withdraw. Now, the British government, which is already under enormous international pressure, because of its uh, coercive policies in Ireland, hedges its bets. They have already processed partition through the Government of Ireland Act, which was passed in December 1920, and is introduced in uh, June with the, well, May with the elections, and then June with the opening of the Northern Parliament. So they institute partition, and then they, as Birkenhead very famously says, now that we've secured the position of our orange friends in Ulster, we are ready to be liberal with the Sinn Feiners. And then they invite uh, the Sinn the Sinn Féin movement uh, to talks, and that is that is the context for the talks. I begin off the 11th of July uh, ceasefire, uh, which is a strange sort of a date to be calling a ceasefire, especially <laughs> in Ulster, leads to a massive explosion of violence in Belfast, unsurprisingly. Uh, so there's not much peace in around Belfast, but there is across the rest of Ireland. This leads to a series of talks between Devler and Lloyd George, and I might even let Kieran go in and maybe talk a wee bit about the. Uh, up until this point, this is the, that's the context right up until uh, the Sinn Féin delegation, uh, Devil Air doesn't go himself, the Sinn Féin delegation then goes over to London to try and uh, come up with peace terms between the British Empire and the revolutionary government at all. Yeah, I might just add a small bit to that. I mean, um, Fred has given a comprehensive uh, analysis there of what's happened up to the truce and, and um, also running concurrent to the sort of military campaign at the IRA, of course, is the workers' campaign or the sort of building on the back of the 1918 general strike, really, where uh, against conscription, where workers across the railways and the docks, their uh, tool, well, didn't um, continue working. Um, and feeding into that the ITGWU I suppose were building themselves among rural farm labourers 
particularly in East Leinster and Munster and places like that, they reached about 60,000 members by 1920. So there's, uh, we might talk about the class dynamics later, there's a sort of underlying uh, tension there in, in within Irish society between within the Republican nationalist movement as well, I suppose, between certain sections, certain there's different social bases to give their allegiance to, you know, the, the Labour movement or, or to the uh, Republican movement. And there's class tensions within the Republican movement as well between the, the leadership and, and uh, different sections of it. Um, as well, I suppose, there's the Soviets, which come to the fore then in 1919, the Limerick Soviet being the most famous of them. The Limerick Soviet it exists for about two weeks in 1919, and they managed to sort of set up a system where they barter and pay for goods through their own currency, and you know they run cream, there's cream places like that, and a Soviet as well in Monaghan, in the Monaghan Asylum. So there's a and that's all building on the back, of course, of the Russian Revolution in 1917, that international context of socialism and revolution. So that's important going forward into what we'll talk about with the civil war, that there's these alien uh, class tensions. And particularly in the farm labour strike, you see, and cattle driving as well, that goes on in the West later, more towards the civil war, you do see instances of the Republican leadership trying to put distance between themselves and that, or even in some cases instructing IRA units to sort of push things as the social protest. And that really comes to boiling point, I suppose, after the treaty negotiations and, and the, the vote on the treaty and moving into the civil war. Um. Just in terms of, because what happens in the Civil War, obviously you get these two different camps emerging within the nationalist movement. And I'm interested in maybe getting a sense of how large each side is, how did the split manifest itself in the IRA, and maybe what's holding both sides together in terms of their views on the treaty and the kind of state they want to create. I suppose I'm looking for, was it dominion status or, or annuities or partition that were kind of the more decisive contradictions? Or is there... Um, as was just suggested, kind of the, the, the perhaps even a socialist element. Yeah, well, the, what you really, what I think and what I've argued and about the, what emerges then is the Sinn Féin coalition in 1918 is that, like all mass movements, it's essentially uh, an, umbra an umbrella organisation and many different social forces in Ireland take shelter under it. You, you, the the Irish Labour Party decides to abstain and then, uh, as a result of that, the, the, the Dáil government doesn't really contain any real political representation from quite a sizable section of the Irish population who uh, want uh, a future based at least on uh, the democratic programme of the, the first Dáil. Right? So you, you have the idea that there's about you know, 100,000 members of the Irish Transport and General's Workers' Union by the time of the treaty. You have over about a quarter, quarter of a million people are organised in trade unions. You've witnessed since um, 1918, right up until the, the economic collapse, really, in 1920, you see a wave, an incredible wave of uh, working-class militancy. Now, this finds rhetorical expression in the position of Thomas Johnson and William O'Brien. It does find an awful lot of practical expression, 
but you have a very, very clear and considerable constituency within Ireland who are, for want of a better word, socialists in their politics. They're trade unionists, they've engaged in working class militarism, they're voting for the Irish Labour Party, and in the free state election of June 1922, uh, perhaps benefit from the fact that an awful lot of working class people are a bit peeved with the Sinn Féin electoral panel, you get about one in, over one in five people in the electorate vote for a nominally socialist party, the Irish Labour Party. So there, there's clearly a large section of the Irish population amongst urban, the urban working class, farm labourers who have considerable social expectations of the Irish Revolution. That's one element of the Irish revolutionary movement. You then have uh, a Republican and anti-imperialist, particularly, again, elements within the working class, but quite petty bourgeois and Gaelic revivalist in its origins. And these people have uh, essentially the backbone will emerge as the Sinn Féin, the broad-based Sinn Féin popular movement. These people are Republican and they're anti-imperialist. However, within the Sinn Féin movement, within this, this, this broad-based national movement that, you know, gets about 70% of the Irish population of the whole island to support its claim for a republic, you also get a faction that is incredibly socially conservative and is, has its origins in a coalition between the most right-wing and least Republican elements of what, what had emerged as the first Sinn Féin before 1910 and the Home Rule Crisis, that is the Griffithite, right, a conservative, petty bourgeois, nationalist orientation, and then a grouping that Griffith actually attempted to make a, an alliance with and, and fell foul of the Irish Republican Brotherhood element within the first Sinn Féin because of it. And these people are the Heliates. And who are the Heliates? They're the political representatives of the Catholic Church, a hierarchy of the Catholic Church and the Catholic business class. They are pro-imperial. They're, they're, they're uh, represented politically by uh, Tim Healy and William O'Brien, the All-Farm League. But they're essentially controlled by the likes of William Martin Murphy and the independent newspaper and the employers. Now, this grouping, because it is so conservative that it's actually broken away from, from mainstream constitutional nationalism, forms an incredibly important aspect of the Sinn Féin political machine out of proportion with its popular support. So th th this uh, grouping comes forward as an embodied by Griffith, but probably more significantly by someone like Kevin O'Higgins. Public school educated, very well healed, and very conservative. As he said himself, the most conservative uh, revolutionaries ever uh, got a successive revolution across the line. So that grouping and the, the, the petty bourgeois and, quite, and, and, and a quite large former grouping that, that are attracted to the national elements of Sinn Féin what the treaty does is it, it breaks, it ruptures, it ruptures that, that sort of coalition, the Sinn Féin coalition that I have just described. And it ruptures it in a way that is detrimental to both the working class element and the Republican and anti-imperialist element. First of all, what it does is it, it, it clearly detaches the Griffithite and the conservative nationalist element, which then coalesces with the rump of old constitutional nationalism, the Catholic Church, who, who backed the treaty right away. But crucially, within the militant Republican element that I had identified earlier, there's a schism, and there's a schism that's essentially engineered by Michael Collins. And what Collins does is he uses his acceptance of the treaty and his, his platform that the treaty provided the freedom to achieve freedom. He uses this and the agency of the Irish Republican Brotherhood to convince a sufficient number within this sort of anti-imperialist Republican consistency to accept the treaty. He splits the Republican center of this quite broad base. He, he, he does this really... Uh, Four, two, four things. The first thing is, is he makes the argument that the IRA cannot uh, 
defeat the British militarily, that the treaty was signed under the threat of immediate and terrible war, and the British re-invasion will lead to ultimate military defeat. He then premises, or he then sort of mollifies this position by then suggesting that the treaty is not the freedom that we all dreamed of, but it's the freedom to achieve freedom. And then what he does is, in the interregnum between the, accept the Dawes acceptance of the treaty, it's the anniversary of this a few days ago in January, and the outbreak of the Civil War in June, he plays a dual strategy. The, the, one aspect of it is political. He tries to cover over the main cracks, really, uh, within that main Sinn Féin balance within the broad popular-based movement. And those cracks are based on allegiance and the oath of allegiance to the British Empire. The treaty says that there's going to be an oath, there's going to be a governor-general, that Ireland will be a part, will receive dominion status, right? Collins argues, actually, that what he will do is he will he will write a republican constitution so that the moderate anti-treaty element personified politically by Eamon de Valera and even militarily by someone like Liam Lynch uh, will be able to conscionably take part in the new regime. And this then is used as the premise for the, the aforementioned electoral pact which is, is agreed a month before the free state elections in June. Now, the, the provision for this pact is that Sinn Féin anti and pro-treaty Sinn Féin will stand together in the election and then in proportion to the vote for and against the treaty and that it will form a national coalition in the new state, right? That's the political end of it. The military end of it is, and as you use the structures there, Republican Brotherhood to launch a, a clandestine campaign against Craig's Northern government using pro and anti-treaty IRA. And he, he, he maintains this balancing act until two days before the election, when he tells people to vote for who they want. And then on the morning of the election, the price of praise, <laughs> he publishes a pro-imperialist constitution because he's been told by the British government that he has to publish an imperial constitution. So an awful lot of the present commentary from someone like Roman McGreevy in the Times, for instance, uh, which is talking about the fact that the vote in June 1922 was a vote for democracy and those who opposed the free state were actually by implication, dictators or anti-democratic, kind of ignores the fact that the vote in June 1922 was for the panel, and the vast majority of people in the Francis counties voted for the panel. In fact, despite the best efforts of an awful lot of Irish historians to suggest that they didn't, 70% of the people who voted for either side in the panel transferred their votes to the opposite side of the panel. So, so that, that was uh, the basis, really, then, of what Collins uses then has his mandate uh, for civil war. And his mandate for civil war is based, what someone like John Regan might argue, is based on the fact that the Republican guards in the four courts are intent on attacking the six counties. And if they attack the six counties, Collins is worried that this will lead to a British re-engagement. The British have already decided at cabinet level to attack the four courts, but General Kennedy tells them, don't do that, because if you do that, the Republicans who Collins has sort of persuaded to join the, the, the treaty side will defect back and become Republicans again. So Collins borrows uh, British artillery, attacks the four courts, and this is quite important. The threat that Winston Churchill had given him uh, about this uh, said that this has to be done by the, the, the 1st of July, but the 1st of July was the date that was set for the dissolution of the second thought, and it has never dissolved. And this then subsequently gives uh, militant republicanism as justification for continuing it. Its campaign, but the, the key thing here is that the issues, the, the key issues in the treaty, and I don't want to sort of suck the oxygen out of the bit, I don't want to give other people a chance, but the issue 
in the treaty is a tension between partition on one side and republic versus empire on the other. The Irish go into the talks looking to blame any potential breakdown on the issue of partition, or it's called the Ulster issue. The British go into the talks convinced that they have to side in the Ulster issue and make it a case of empire and republic because it's only on the question of the empire that Britain feels that it would have sufficient popular support to re-engage militarily. And what Arthur Griffith does is that he kind of unilaterally gives up the position of Ulster quite uh, stupidly when we look in retrospect of what the Boundary Commission actually achieved in 1825. But the, the issue of, of Ulster is sidelined and then it becomes a contest between empire and republic. And, and that, to all intents and purposes, that tension, that sort of polarity within politics operates until the attack on the four courts. And, and, and the, you can't really understand the breakdown of that mass and fan movement, right? If you don't understand this polarity between or between partition on one end and then the tension between empire and republic on the other. A lot of people say, why wasn't, why, what was it, over 300 something pages of debates in the Dáil with the treaty and only nine pages are uh, about the partition of Ireland? It's because both sides, I think, believe that the Boundary Commission would leave partition redundant. The moderate Republican side or anti-treaty side, de Valera and Collins believe that the Boundary Commission would solve the issue of partition or to, to a satisfactory degree. And then the British sailing of that issue then makes it a contest between empire and republic. But we, we maybe go into more depth on the divisions within you know anti pro and anti-treaty in more detail later on. I don't want to talk too much. Yeah, I think it's uh, worthwhile saying as well that uh, revisionist historians, you know, they try to sort of obfusc obfuscate that point that Ferg has made about empire versus republic by maybe saying, overemphasizing this thing of symbols or that uh, the anti-treaty IRA and Republicans were sort of intransigent because they focused on these things, these formulas that didn't really matter to the, the average person in Ireland. Um, but you know, they, 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 they talk a lot about the, the, the you know, the, the honor of uh, people being sort of dishonored. I mean, there is a, there is a substance in that, I suppose, in the case of Liam Meadows, he's an interesting character, a sort of instructive character you can look at in terms of the treaty, because he did sort of believe in, you know, being dishonored or the Republic being dishonored and the soldier's honor and things of that nature. But he's also instructive in terms of where socialism can be found located or not located in the, those years in the Irish Revolution and into the Irish Civil War, because really uh, his socialism, I think, was made more of than it actually was by Pat O'Donnell later and then by Desmond Greaves as well. They sort of found a more a stronger left-wing tendency in the Irish Revolution maybe than existed, certainly in some of the sort of key figures of agree with Fergal about the sort of mass trade union movement and so forth, but I mean, within republicanism itself, and that goes back to, uh, you know, the social base of it, really, if you look at the, the working class nature or the, the, the time when working class 
to the fore within Fenianism or Republicanism was in the 1860s. And that the, that proclamation was more radical than what came after in 1916 or the democratic program later in 1918. So that sort of shift that happens after uh, that type of Fenianism goes into abeyance in the 1870s and it's more about the line question and then becomes fused with the revivalist question later and the, the, it's more about sort of clerks and teachers and civil servants and shop is about sort of the urban working class to, to a degree. I mean, that changes the, the sort of demands that the Republican movement of the Civil War wants. And if you look at Mellows, there's an argument to be made as well that he sort of only adopts socialism quite late in the day. He writes from his prison cell about you know, the need for a socialist republic. And I mean, he, he recognises the balance of forces and the Fergus alluded to the, the wealthy and the, the press barons and the, the farmers and the old middle classes aligned uh, with the pro-treaty forces. But there's an argument to be made and Conor McNamara makes it in his book that maybe he's sort of appealing to the trade union movement while he's in prison and the Republican movement is, is on the back foot. So that really has to do with the sort of, as I mentioned, the, the, the longer term context of uh, the social base of the Republican movement. And then really the, the character of uh, Republicanism, Republicanism going forward up until the Republican Congress is sort of, you know, it's defined by the issue of the treaty rather than class politics, I think, until Pat O'Donnell and people come to the fore and what's left of the Republican movement in the, uh, in the 30s. I was flicking through Pat O'Donnell's um, Civil War diary there kind of in preparation for this, and he has this line in it. I think he makes mention of kind of um, coming to Mon's involvement in rebuilding the non-military aspects of the, of the anti-treaty campaign. Um, I'm aware that we can talk about this very much in terms of um, leaders. We can see this very much as a competition between Dev and, uh, and Colin. So if you've got anything to say on the, on the kind of broader civil society resistance, that would be class. What we see, and you see it in, in, in all of the, the, the female doll deputies who are accused of some sort of, you know, feminine neuralgia and are dismissed as crazy people. I think P.S. O'Hagerty called them the Furies. And he didn't mean the, the folk band. <laughs> you know, they weren't playing the banjo and the doll. Uh, several things are going on there. Obviously, Mary McSweeney's the most famous one of them. But, but both Kathleen Clark and, and Podick McPierce's mother refer to partition and then to, to this idea about the, the abjuration of an oath and a, a pledge to republicanism. And what happens is the common demand, which are the so, most socially progressive, really, element of the republican movement and, and contains an awful lot of socialists, feminists, former pacifists in, in their pacifism, and socialists is quite it's very left wing in its politics. It votes you not you know incredibly. I think over eighty percent of them vote to oppose the treaty, and are dismissed then as these mad women who are you know pledged that there's some sort of neurotic attachment to the myths of republicanism. But their, their opposition has both subjectively and objectively says an awful lot about what the free state is and, and what it will become. It will become an incredibly patriarchal and misogynistic. Society. Now, that is not to suggest that there wasn't 
patriarchy and, and misogyny on the Republican side, but but the, the, the most progressive element in the female population, the most feminist, the most socialist, tended to be engaged in either the labour movement or in the common demand, and they clearly took the side of the Republic in that conflict. I think one of the, the big things about uh, Mallows and, and his letter in September 1922, before he, he's killed, he accuses the Labour Party of selling the soul of the working class for the flesh pots of empire, which is a bit harsh, really, because, you know, uh, was Thomas Johnson and William O'Brien in any sort of a position to, to uh, afford to, to pay for the massive insurgency, particularly the farm leaders of Kildare and Waterford and stuff like this, subsequently in the period. The, the issue here appears to be that the free state is, is the consolidated reaction of Catholic property manifested ideologically through the elements they've identified, O'Higgins and that Griffithite nationalism and the church. There, there, there's, a, there's a class element, there's a clear reassertion of class power in the imposition of the free state. It's occluded to a certain extent by divisions within republicanism, by Collins. So, like, like, you get ridiculous thing like Noel McGrath joins the free state government because he wants to implement the democratic program. That's what he says he wants to do. Like, it's pretty crazy. Michael Collins, again, is very ambivalent position, but the idea is that. The free state, what begins as, uh, as the pro-treaty element in the free state, is divided in amongst themselves on a consolidationist grouping, which, which are quite reactionary, mostly conservative, and have the backings of, of the elite, and then a, a progressivist, or an element which sees acceptance of the treaty in line with moving towards Republican objectives, right? What, what happens very, very quickly, particularly after uh, uh, the assassination of Collins, is that that consolidationist element and that, that to be quite honest about it, quite reactionary element, gain control over the new state. And you get the full expression then, the reassertion really of the type of structures within Southern or nationalist Catholic society that were there before the revolution. You get the, re, you get the reimposition really of the class structure of the pre-First World War Ireland. What the revolutionary period seemed to do was, like it did across much of the world, is that it, it, it introduced a degree of potentiality and flexibility within class relations. And it gave people an opportunity who, were, who never would have had an opportunity previously and then subsequently don't have an opportunity, much of an opportunity for the, the, the mobilization expression of class politics. It gives those people an opportunity and they seize it with both hands. But it's very fleeting because that cohesion and that very strict unitary position of what will become the free state authorities is in direct contrast then to what's on the other side. And the other side is heterogeneous, it's disorganized, it's, it's fragmented. You have, <clears throat> and that, that, I think that's what Mallows, it's a bit rich for Mallows then to criticize the Labour Party, as Kieran says, because <clears throat> even Pat O'Donnell acknowledges that, you know, an awful lot of socialist and working class members of the ex-Republican army were like supporting cattle ranchers and, and uh, there were, you know, the, the Soviet in Cork Harbour, they were, you know, they were sent to, to close that down. Uh, whenever Kevin O'Shea's affiliate uh, uh, from Throne uh, takes over the land arbitration courts, it's IRA who chase landless labourers off uh, the ranches that they've seized and return them to their typically unionist or, you know, non-Republican owners. And that, that, that's the key thing really about what, what happens 
in the free state. These people, to, to an extent, and again, and not over egg the pudding or go on too much here, these people, to an extent, uh, and they'll do it in the 1930s, like manifest an awful lot of the uh, optimist or accidental democratic tendencies of what you get in, in another Catholic country like Spain in the 1930s, Gil Robles and Theta, right? So you, you, you get this idea about you have the undeserving poor who are essentially ulterior to the state. And, and Patrick McGilligan says people are going to have to starve to death in Ireland to realise that, you know, <laughs> we're not the, it's not the government's job to uh, feed people. You have Hogan, the Minister of Agriculture, right in the Cosgrave saying, you know, there's a million and a half people here and they think, you know, we're going to give them land and they're trying to gain it. I think it's by the torch and the sword, he says. No, they're not. So you get the, 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 the complete destruction of the social aspiration that was at least latent in the revolutionary moment. You get its obliteration. You get O'Higgins saying that the democratic program is mostly poetry. And then you get the imposition then of a very austere law and order based use of emergency powers and highly, and essentially the control and consolidation of the Catholic Church's control over much of social policy. So you, you get exactly what James Connolly had said you would get with partition. In 1914, you get a carnival reaction north and south. You get institutionalized Orangeism based in the north, and you get institutionalized class power and social Catholicism in the south. And that's, I think, what looking at it from a, a sort of a, with a broad lens and from a class-based perspective, you get, it, it, it kind of conforms to, the, to what you would describe as a kind of revolution. Yeah, I agree with that. Revolution, of course, suppressed with ferocious violence. I mean, 77 Republicans killed with uh, extrajudicial powers in 1922 and 23, or in 23, sorry. Um, and as well, along with the sort of suppression of the protest and the opportunity for maybe to develop the sort of egalitarian tendencies of republicanism into socialism. You have this question of cultural continuity or continuity with the sort of Brit British uh, state that it had existed the, really into administrative terms. You have 98% of, of the civil servants who are operating in the free state had served under um, British under the British um, administration. So there's no break in that continuity. And that's then reflected in the culture service going forward in the, in the sort of fiscally conservative uh, policy that's really orientated towards London, even though they say that they want to be independent of, of Britain to some degree. And that continues on even with De Valera until sort of a wobble with economic wars, but also culturally. I mean, look, Cosgrave was mentioned there. He actually like, continued to wear, or he, he was sort of obsessed with wearing top hats and tailcoats and things like that. So very in, in, the, in the sort of British mould. And funny enough, or paradoxically, maybe they started to use policy of gay-lisization quite early in the 1920s, but it's really a symbolic policy. It's not it's not something that's actually going to relieve the, the problem of depopulation or do anything for, that, for the, the West or the Grails up to where uh, Irish speakers are, are still uh, reality. 
and what they do is they actually use it as a as a means of sort of keeping out uh republicans they they sort of use it to make things more coherent and uh Irish or non-Irish speakers out, out, out of the civil service. So it's not something that had been pointed out that the redistribution would be needed um, by Connolly at least um, to, to sort of resolve the issues around around the language, the cultural issues, but they, they go with a real conservative sort of symbolic thing that actually is counterproductive and it turns people uh, in the free state against the language because their material but they're told they have to sort of, uh, you know, tend to schools through language or, uh, you know, go into the civil service and use the language. Well, that's introduced later with De Valera, but all in all, yeah, very conservative. The radical Republican tradition very much holds on to that, to that Republic and regard themselves as kind of the authentic bearers of that. You mentioned the doll not being dissolved. So commemoration, while it might seem like something new because it's taken up so much of our time in, in, in terms of newspaper columns and, and conversations at conferences, it's always been really contentious and it's always been really central to that, to that historical legacy. Um, would you have anything to say with regard to that over its history? Or? What a lot of the, what you were going to experience now is the, the use of history for the legitimization of a state, and that's a state that was created in uh, December 1921, it's a 26th county uh, dominion of the British Empire. And uh, the discourse is going to be dominated by this idea that the people who opposed this state were anti-democratic in their ethos, and the people who created this, this state were the Democrats. And I think it's it's just a historical. It doesn't it doesn't correspond to the nuance. There were clearly people on the Republican side who had very little truck for democracy, but there were an awful lot of people on the Free State side who had no truck for democracy either. As their subsequent career, Desmond Fitzgerald, Ono Duffy, Ernst Blade in the blue shorts will demonstrate. So what we need to get away from here is this sort of quite lazy using history to sort of, as part of a myth, uh, mythological process of legitimizing the state, which, which you know, ironically, an awful lot of historians who call themselves revisionists will, will promote this sort of, or have spent decades promoting this argument. Like, another thing about this is that it's the massive decontextualization of structural and threatened imperial violence is almost inaudible in the debate. And, and there are a few, there are clearly some exceptions to this, but we have to be very, very clear. And Mallows did say it's not the, the will of the people, it's the, the fear of the people. But we have to be very clear about this, that the, the election, the June 1922 election, right, the vast majority of Irish people voted for the panel, voted for a continuation of a coalition, I shouldn't say a coalition, government that was going to operate to all intents and purposes like a Russian doll model of external association. They were going to actually create external association inside the treaty, external association that Ireland would be internally republic, would be associated with the British Empire. The reason why they were doing that was because they wanted to avert a civil war. But, you know, condemn cons, condemn Davalor in retrospect, but they wanted to try and avert a civil war in the election. The electoral pact was an attempt to avert civil war. That's why they, they, they promoted this Republican constitution. Winston Churchill writes a letter to Collins in April. 
and he says, you're going to have to choose. You can have a republic or you can break the treaty and we're going to reinvade. Okay? So, and Churchill also says that, that, that the electorate pact was inherently anti-democratic. <laughs> strange sort of a position for someone who denied Irish democracy for two years. And also a strange position for a member of a coalition cabinet in Britain which had operated a coupon in the 1918 election and had its own electoral pact. Nothing inherently anti-democratic about this. What was inherently anti-democratic was that in 1922, it was illegal to be a Republican in Ireland. You couldn't be, you couldn't be a conscionable Republican and take part in the political process. Right? Republicanism had been outlawed. And it's in the British cabinet papers. Either Collins will deal right, with these people, but the British Empire will not allow the Republican flag to fly in Ireland. And Collins dealt. Now he dealt, I think, to perhaps to be generous to him under the misapprehension that he would then use the treaty as the basis then for what De Valera would subsequently do in the, the 1930s. There's an awful lot of uh, retrospect, <laughs> retrospect involved in that. What essentially happens is that the promises that he makes and the promises that had led a considerable element of people who were genuinely Republican in their politics to accept the treaty, by 1925, it's quite clear that this has been a disaster. Right? The, the Boundary Commission is a farce. In fact, there's a, there's a great line, Wilfred Spender, who's, who's the chief civil servant of the North, who's also the head of the UBF. And he says, when Cosgrave went over to London to meet Stanley Baldwin about the, uh, the, the Boundary Commission report being published, he cried. He burst out into tears. But the, the, you know, the, this is the same Cosgrave who spent the War of Independence in England in case he could shot and who Collins called the bloody little altar boy. And he had an ordinary in all in his, his house. And he loved, again, and said, dressing up in top hats. But, but the, the key point here is that all the planks of that sort of construct that Collins had made, that it was the freedom to achieve freedom, that there'd be a Republican constitution, that the Boundary Commission would deal with partition satisfactory. Those constructs, those promises that uh, an awful lot of the popular support for what will become coming again were based on, they're gone within two years. They're, they're rubbish. And then what you get then is you get a very clear position where elector electorally, you've got about a third of the population in the South are all for the laissez for strict austere economics, taking you know, money off pensioners, <laughs> you know, setting up a sort of emergency legislation, letting the Catholic Church run the country. Although, to be fair, a vast majority of Irish people in the 26 counties would have accepted a lot of that. Uh, what you get then is you get about a third of the population happy with that, and then you get simmering massive social discontent. And, and that simmering massive social discontent, and you get things in, in newspapers like on Fublock in the middle of the 1920s, you get calls for social revolution. And, and, and again, it's this re-articulation and re-emergence under the reality of what the free state establishment is, which again carries De Valera into power in the environment of the Great Depression on the back of a, a socially quite populist Fianna Fáil movement, which contains elements of support which are more revolutionary, not in Fianna Fáil itself, but in elements within the IRA, who mistakenly believe that they're going to carry De Valera to power as a stepping stone towards perhaps the fulfilment of future political progress, but very, very quickly find out that once De Valera gets into power, he's not going to fight another civil war, and he comes to terms very, very quickly with the Catholic Church and private property. But, you know, 
to me that, that that's the that, those are the, the 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 two elephants in the room. There's not even one. One is that this sort of the British imperial violence just won't be mentioned in an awful lot of the commemoration, and and the the, the second one is actually the the democratic dictator scenario and then falls down whenever you, you you look at it from that perspective and you actually look at the record of not just not just O'Higgins in these cases they were probably more democratic believe it or not than Michael Collins it's a good argument to say that from there from he creates the count the, the war council of three uni, unilaterally on the 12th of July quite an appropriate date in 1922 until he's shot he's in essence a military dictator he's running the country without any he's, he doesn't even, there's no parliament open Parliament hasn't been opened, and uh, he doesn't even refer things to the cabinet. In fact, after he appoints the military council of three, two days later he writes a letter to Arthur Griffin. He says, "Arthur, do us a favour, retrospectively legitimise what I've just, you know, created with my mates in the IRB." Well, yeah, I suppose that the point about the IRB is interesting because initially, as I mentioned earlier, I had been well, it was obviously conspiratorial and non well vaguely democratic organisation, I suppose. You had James Stevens call himself sort of provisional dictator of it back in the 1860s. But I mean, by the time Collins comes to wield that as a weapon to manoeuvre his own uh, objectives for the treaty, it's completely anti-democratic and, and, and conspiratorial. I mean, it's only a, a fraction in terms of membership of what it was, but it's still able to... Um, mobilize certain people in certain localities and swing things in, in favor of the treaty. I agree as well that the commemoration will be sanitized. I mean, it'll be broken down, I think, as a sort of into a tribalist narrative, which isn't dissimilar from how the Free State and the Dublin side one of the establishment likes to talk about the history of uh, the conflict in the north from the 70s, a sort of two communities or two sort of groups at loggerheads bashing heads off one another, but not looking at why, why that is, what's the imperial context, what's what's the structures to that, what's the uh, colonial context, why, you know, why are they doing that? Um, and, I mean, some of, this, some of the stuff they've pulled, I suppose, over the decade of centenaries is instructive about how they might sort of shoehorn certain elements are, you know, uh, sanitise it. I mean, in 2016, they had the audacity to hang a banner to Redmond and Daniel O'Connell and Parnell and someone else who was it, uh, Henry Grattan, I think, on College Green, so sort of shoehorning people who had nothing to do with the rising or who actively condemned it or who called for people to, you know, go and fight for empire into, into uh, something that was commemorating or should have been commemorating an anti-imperialist uh, rising. So they will try and uh, very much, you know, mould the, mold the narrative, I think, to sort of take any any of the class politics that we've been talking about earlier, especially any of the questions of, uh, you know, sectarianism and uh, what the B-specials did and the pogroms that the Fergal has raised as well. Not very much will be said about that. There is a civil war conference on in UCC, I believe, in the, in the summer. 
but again, I mean, it's framed in a sort of all narratives are equal, even if their narratives are anti-national liberation, these are equal to narratives that are, you know, against colonialism. So, I mean, that comes from, I think, the sort of dispensation that's existed in Ireland for the last, well, yeah, particularly in the last 20, 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement, where there's parity of esteem given to different um, narratives, even if they're at loggerheads with each other, instead of focusing on sort of the uh, traditions or maybe, you know, Republican or secular traditions of Protestants in Ireland or maybe even their liberal traditions, um, there's a sort of... Uh, acceptance of imperialism and orangeism and, and the sectarianism that drives it so i mean i don't know i don't know what the point of history that puts a colonial and an anti-colonial perspective on on the same level is i mean to me history is something that you should uh utilize in in the present to sort of resolve or try to come to some sort of understanding of how we can push things forward forward it's not something that i mean the the, the Irish state version of history i think is like something that you know uh, some old lad in in his middle class back garden on a sunny sunday morning uh reads a book after reading the the sunday independent and you know and then he goes to the pub and is able to talk about facts about the civil war with his old lad mates in their leinster rugby jersey sort of thing you know that's the Irish version, Irish state version of history, and it's not all very nuanced. But what's the point of that history? It doesn't actually achieve anything in the here and now. We want to sort of push things forward, or, uh, you know, at least aspire to some of the bleeding objectives that these people were fighting for, not just discuss them all with our mates. You know what I mean? And um, and just you mentioned the radical liberal um, Protestant traditions there, and I really wanted to get onto this at some stage, which is. Something that I hear a lot in this whole period is um, republicanism in the wolf tone tradition, as distinct from Irish republicanism proper or actually existing Irish republicanism. And I'd really like to bring in the 1798 dimension. Uh, why is it the wolf tone can become such a touchstone for everyone, how he's all things, all people, and uh, you know why most of those interpretations are, are, are just wrong? Uh, well, I think you're talking about Michal Martin, who loves quoting the first part of the Uniting Catholic Protestant in the center, but never quotes at the beginning of the thing, which is practically connection with England, the never ever in its source of all our political evils. So the the and Kieran's on the money here in terms of what this is about. This is about the reorientation of history from a, an overtly anti-republican perspective in the academy, which was essentially, you know, the idea that Ireland is somehow unique and that the historians who the state pay for. Don't echo the, the conceptions of the state. Like you know, we're not we're not that uh, uh, exceptional, folks. You know, the same process was going on with Fury in France and with revisionism all over the world. And this denigration of revolutions since nineteen sixties happens in Ireland. It happens in Ireland on the context of the troubles. What we've got since the the peace process is essentially then this idea about reconciliation. What reconciliation means. So in that context, being a uh, Republican in the Wolf Tone tradition actually means not being a Republican because it, it means accepting pro Irish Protestant people uh, as immutably unionist and sectarian and bigoted. That's essentially what it means. 
it means that actually Wolf Tone didn't exist, Henry J. McCracken didn't exist, or the, the, the 12 members of the Belfast Labour Party or voted the Belfast Council in January 1920 didn't exist because Protestants aren't Irish. That's, that's the argument. And it's, it's based on a, a very wrong-headed and incredibly sectarian and quite idealistic and reactionary reading of history. In essence, what being a wolf tone Republican means, if it means anything, is a, is a, a specifically Irish articulation within the, con the context of a colonial history of the ideas of the radical enlightenment, i.e. <laughs> it's not the, the idea that you, know, you, get this, you get this terrible uh, line that somehow Irish republicanism is blind to the reality of Ulster unionism. And you go, no, actually, Irish republicanism was, was not blind to the colonial history of Ireland. It was designed to transcend colonial division. And Irishmen say, nobody ever who walk along the fields that our ancestors have uh, spilled with, with blood or with. The, the idea about Irish republicanism is the transcendence of the colonial divisions based on the principles of the radical enlightenment, the creation of a civic nation, not a Catholic nation, not a Protestant nation a civic concept of an Irish nation based on universal rights. That's what republicanism has been. And in the Irish context, it has always been anti-colonial. That's what being a Republican in the wolf throne tradition means. So the sort of constitutional nationalist, uh, which, which is now the dominant political position of all the main parties in Ireland at the minute, the constitutional nationalist position about this area of good relations and reconciliation is actually a subversion of wolf throne republicanism. And it's, it's a ridiculous idea that by entrenching and considering sectarian division to be immutable, we're going to transcend sectarian division. You know, so the, 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 way to, the way to get rid of sectarianism in the north of Ireland is to institutionalize sectarianism. You know, so like if you like, take my eight-year-old daughter down here and ask her, do you think that's going to work? And she'd probably go, how do you transcend or get rid of something by making it concrete and the basis of everything you do? So the, the use and abuse of history and the, and the manipulation of commemoration runs hand in hand with the illusion and the occlusion of an awful lot of what was real and what actually happened in the past. And what happened in the past is like most countries across the world, you get development of history to class and controls the means of production and property. But in the Irish context, it's in a context of colonialism where there's a division between much of the indigenous population and the elite were in obviously in continental Europe, you get a quite homogenous national bourgeoisie in Ireland. It's different. But th that's what Wolf, that's what Wolf Tone Republicanism was about. It's to transcend it's about actually real reconciliation. And real reconciliation would be the creation of a civic nation based on universal concepts and rights. And if you're going to commemorate anything, you should commemorate that and probably use that as the framework for the type of Ireland you're looking to create in the future. Not putting people in, you know, permanent sectarian silos, which is ridiculous. Well, I think the 1790s, what the own, my own work that I've done on it is in the locality of where I live, where I, where I still live in Rakul. And again, if you're looking at uh, revisionism and this question of tribalism, that's nearly every sort of... Uh, clash if if you if if you can say that between Catholic and Protestant uh, and then obfuscating the imperial element in the 1790s uh, in Southwest Dublin, 
you had really a politicization of the ordinary people by the United Irishmen. And that's what happened here. Um, they were sort of transformed or politicized towards Republican goals. Some of it level, a leveling philosophy was included in that. And it was sort of personal, it was aimed at the uh, land agents that existed in the area, but it was, it did have a, Republic, a strong Republican dimension. But what happened with the writing of that as, as well as did for years, actually up until 19. Bicentenary for years, the dominant narrative was won by Thomas Pakenham that said that it was agrarian or else it was sectarian. So you get the School of Bogue is put, put on a pedestal all the time. And the, the context of what happened in School of Bogue leading up to it is the sort of massacres, the white terror, as it were, initiated by the colonial government that sort of scared Catholics senseless. Um, so, I mean, that, that was the revision, re, revisionism of, of the 1790s. I'm gladly that was, that was challenged in 98, where you got people like and, uh, others who started looking, and Tommy Graham who started looking at the uh, politicization element. But, you know, that's, it's not really in the discourse anymore because the, what's in the discourse now is the revolutionary uh, decade. And the revisionism around that... Uh, I think has been uh, in the popular consciousness it hasn't been absorbed as much as the state would want it to. And if you look at the commemorations, a lot of the commemorations that happen uh, were organised by local people autonomously of the state. And we had one here in Raccoon, and it did. There were some sort of contradictions, but at least the input from people who were Republicans as well. That varied from locality to locality. There was areas that were more Republican in that commemoration than others. Um, but I don't know, though, I suppose the point I'm making is that <laughs> if you're talking about civil war and how to commemorate it, I would say that, you know, commemorations are going to be, you know, grassroots stuff is going to be more important to get to the truth of things where the real factors, which Fergal has talked about in terms of you know, the overbearing a threat of swift and terrible war and imperialism and the anti-democratic nature of um, what would become the blue sh shorts where they actually get aired because the state isn't going to do that. So the people have to do it. All the polemical attention that the state shit draws down, quite rightly, not to mention the black and tan stuff, but that it can often include stuff like what's going on at a community level, which some level of reconciliation or even more radical approaches can, can, can flourish much more easily. What kind of trends you see in history writing uh, with regard to bringing that more radical element to our understanding of Irish history? Uh, who is it in particular uh, as individuals or as groups who are doing good work, whether in their writing, their research or their activism, and what might the next steps be in, in that sort of regard? Well, two things. And, uh, one of them is what Kieran's already mentioned. It's the rediscovery of the social revolution. Uh, whenever I was an undergraduate in the last century, uh, I did, there was no social revolution in Ireland. Was, and I never heard of 80 Soviets in Ireland. I thought, you know, what, 80 Soviets? And uh, the progressive radicalization of these Soviets. So I'm actually working on a, an added collection. Olivia Cochlea is contributing one. 
on the Soviets. It's going to come out with you, Michigan, in the new year. I'm also contributing another one with John Cunningham and Terry Dunn called Spirit of Revolution. My own research, uh, which will be in, part of it will be in the Spirit of Revolution book, uh, seems to indicate, and again, none of, I read, you know, I read For My Sins, the work of, uh, sort of Althusser and Orange Marxist, maybe the Queens, and uh, it, you know, was hard going and didn't really represent Marxism or what I understood it to be anyway. But then I revisited the sources recently and what it seems to suggest is before the pogrom, you have the flourishing, the absolute flourishing of working class militancy and socialism across Belfast, parts of Antrim, County Antrim, uh, North Armagh. I have like records of a uh, national union of railway working uh, workers, union official in the cooperative hall in Portadown called William Vannard, who was himself an orange man, and he's inviting uh, revolutionary so socialists from Dublin to go up and give lectures on Connolly to people in Portadown. He's elected to the Urban District Council. Lurgan Urban District Council in January 1920 had a Labour majority. Five Catholics, three Protestants. This is Lurgan. Lurgan is synonymous with sectarian division. In fact, there's a, there's a famous invisible line that runs down the town. And all the tags live on one end and all the frauds live on the other. So what, what you get then, that's what that's the sort of the rediscovery really of not just history from below and the, the finest tradition of someone like E.P. Thompson is where I see Irish history going. Not what I probably engaged in today, which is a lot of elite narrative and probably the, the personal abuse of uh, middle-aged white Catholic men who are long dead, but uh, the this idea about the agency of ordinary people and how they attempted and probably weren't ultimately successful, but attempted to affect change and to, and to create a better world, better yeah, author of the West possibly. So th that that's the that that's where I want to see analysis of the Irish Revolution going, and that's where an awful lot of it is going, and it's breaking through a consensus that's that that's you know. Apart and an awful lot of, of history writing, particularly in Ireland, which is the school of high politics, which is elite driven, and which has a very, very set agenda that the praise of praise confirms to the current elite. And before I finish, I'll probably like echo what Kieran said about the divergence and the, you know, the, the, the very shallow roots of the revisionist analysis of the Irish Revolution amongst the majority of people in Ireland. That actually, you know, two generations of revisionist uh, writing, which, which, you know, try to basically say that the Republicans were sectarians, the British were neutral arbiters, and the Unionists deserved, you know, everything that they got, right? Has not really permeate, permeated much of society. And by sort of serendipitous sort of uh, equivalence, the same percentages that were there at the beginning of the free state, there's about, yeah, but you know, but a third of the population probably don't want there to be an idea Ireland, don't want much social change, support the elite narrative, you know, think John Bruton's a great fella. And then the majority of Irish people actually like the ideas of the Irish Revolution, think there should be an idea Ireland, think there should be a degree of social equality and social provision, and think that minorities and uh, everybody should be protected by the state. So, you know, uh, the, the, the 
spurred a revolution. The, 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 the aims and objectives of Irish society has transformed an awful lot in the last century. But a lot of the precepts of what it is to be an Irish Republican or, or, or a socialist within the Irish context haven't. And I don't think, you know, that is a message that is, you know, not, you know, that wouldn't be received uh, across the island. Not, not just, you know, the, the Protestants of the North have a great legacy of radicalism and uh, have a history that we're finding out about now of, you know, uh, before the pogrom of, of, you know, cooperating uh, in trade unions and through working class militancy with, with Catholic uh, where my own research is going on. I definitely agree with the point about the nationalist um, interpretation or post-revisionist interpretation now where it's how many biographies of De Valera do we need? Like, when does it, when does it stop? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's madness. But, I mean, this is something that happened in post-colonial or neo-colonial and in the six counties, still colonial societies, where you get the native or the native elite or the, the native bourgeoisie, the comprador class, if you want to call them that, who slot into the administration, into the sort of grooves of what was left behind, and then history reflects that it, it wants to write about how great these sort of nationalist elites are and the subaltern I suppose are left behind and mentioned in other colonial countries in, in that vein you have subaltern was a sort of concept developed by Gramsci but then applied later in India by Spivak and the other people who formed actually a subaltern studies group and there are interesting things happening now with uh, the likes of Fergal definitely emphasising the socialist and the red element to the Irish Revolution. Um, and I think Ralston and McVeigh's book is very important, the one that's just been published. I know Fergal wrote a review on it because, again, it, it, it says what you know, books haven't been saying for a long time, that the colonial element overbearing element in uh, overbearing factor in Irish society or maybe something that could be done is it sort of not subaltern if people didn't want to call it that but some sort of institute or group that worked forward on the on that basis that accepted that there's a colonial the colonial element that accepted that the colonization happened and wrote from that perspective we know that the Revisionists who had institutional power worked in a sort of clique for years and um, had even the ear of politicians like Conor Cruz O'Brien and others from the 70s onwards. Um, so I don't know, maybe there would be a, an avenue to, to pursue that and look at these groups who haven't been looked at before, socialists. Um, women, women actually, in fairness, have got a good uh, volume of work done on them recently by you know, Liz Gillis and McCool and uh, other women who've, that's probably actually one of the positives of the last decade of centenaries is that there's not been so much published on women, but, uh, you know, travellers, Irish speakers, other, other groups, of the subaltern, there's much more to be written about them. And that's what I'm writing about myself as uh, Irish speakers at the moment in the, well, in the whole country, north and south and in the Gaeltacht and their sort of struggles from the 70s onwards to demand the rights that should have been granted to them with the formation of the new state and bedded down and, you know, 
invested in financially, but weren't. And then in 66, on the 50th commemoration of the rise, and it, it became apparent that the state wasn't going to help Irish speakers in any way, and the community was shrinking. Um, so these are the sorts of things I think need to be written more about the, the behind by, by the Free State, really. And by, of course, the groups in the north and uh, Irish speakers and the likes of Fergal Mop and Rothbeek and people like that have written about uh, those, those groups uh, around Belfast and elsewhere. Mm-hmm.